This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we've got a special guest on the podcast today. His name is Vincent Vargas. So he's a retired United States Army Ranger. He was in 2nd Battalion of the 75th Ranger Regiment, and he's a former federal agent with the Department of Homeland Security. He's also an entrepreneur, actor, writer, producer, and speaker, so he's got a lot of stuff going on. But he's most known for his depiction of the character Gilly Lopez on the show Mayans MC, which is an offshoot of Sons of Anarchy. In, in the actual interview, I couldn't remember the name of the show, but it is an offshoot of Sons of Anarchy. But he's also the author of a brand new book and it's right here and it's out now called borderline defending the home front so this book actually details his time spent protecting the united states southern border as a member of the u.s border patrol and so the unique thing about this interview is i've obviously read a lot of military memoirs i've had a lot of military uh retired military guys on this show and what this book is not it is not just okay here's all the crazy stuff that happens at the border and then there i was with my m4 and my nods on and blah 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 and all that and dude i love those stories right i've, I've read literally dozens of those stories but that's not what this is and he even says at the beginning of the book like look this isn't just uh, a time for me to just pretend like my job was crazier than it was but what this book does is it does describe some stories and some actual things that they uh, were in and some actual kinetic situations but it dispels a lot of myths around immigration, uh, customs, border enforcement, and how these things are just kind of like a mishmash because people don't pay that close attention to what's happening in policy. And so they just think all these things are combined, right? The same thing like somebody overstaying their their visa after a vacation is somehow the same as somebody just walking across the southern border with a whole bunch of drugs in their knapsack. And so I really enjoyed this this podcast because we didn't just follow the book, right? Okay, so what was it like when you decided to do this with your life and blah, 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 and just kind of work our way through the basically the whole second half of the of the conversation today we're just going through stuff like hey uh what should we do about dreamers like you know how is it hard for americans to distinguish between border security and immigration policy should we militarize the border should we completely shut it down uh, why not just build the wall isn't border patrol ultimately racist and xenophobic and for a guy like him being hispanic you know isn't it bad that he's keeping hispanics out of this country when he himself is a product of somebody that came here illegally Legally. We get into all these different subject matters. We also talk about his connection with his father and a connection with someone else from, um, you know, his Army Ranger days and just the primary goal of what he's doing now. So I really, really enjoyed my conversation with him. So guys, without further ado, let's get into it. Vincent Vargas, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm happy to have you in here. We we had a, a little get to know each other a session right before this because you and I lived in the same town for a little bit. You lived in Lawton, Oklahoma, which is really cool, but there's nothing cool about that city, so we're not going to talk about it here on this interview. But uh, as I told you off air, this is going to be a little bit of a different interview from what I do because you have a new book out, which guys, if you're listening to this now, it is out this week. It's called Borderline Defending the Homefront. And typically, you know, I'll kind of follow the book and kind of follow the cadence of the book. But you brought up so many interesting topics that I think it would be kind of stupid if we just followed the book. So, guys, the book is in the show notes. Get the book. Uh, it's a unique book, especially for guys that have read a lot of military memoirs or uh, first responder memoirs. There's not a whole lot of stuff with Border Patrol. Uh, stuff in it. So I think this is kind of a unique blue ocean for you. But the book does cover your your military career, your U.S. Border Patrol career. But I just want to know, wh why did you want to write a book about your experience? You know, how'd you get connected with, with Jocko? He wrote the foreword and it's being put out with Jocko Press and St. Martin's like, take me through that whole process because a lot of guys have done what you've done, but haven't put it down on paper. Yeah. So, you know, I started 
what what the book doesn't talk about is that you know after the, I left, I went into the entertainment industry, and mm -hmm. one of the writers and creators of the show that I was on grew up with Jocko. They call each other brothers. That's how close mm -hmm. they were. And so he goes, "Hey, do you know my brother?" I'm like, "Well, who's that?" And he said, "Jocko." I was like, "Holy crap! Everyone yeah. knows Jocko in my world." Right? And so I said, yeah. So at the time I had a movie premiere, a documentary that I produced coming out and I invited Jocko to come see it. And he did. And from there we became friends. And so as I was kind of watching what was happening on the media, I was very frustrated at the Border Patrol career field being demonized and being scrutinized and being judged and all the things I heard on the news. And I knew it was misinformation and it was frustrating for me as someone who genuinely loved the career field. I couldn't sit back and watch it anymore. And so for about three years, I had to try and figure out what was the the path I was going to take into telling the story of the career, right? How, was I going to make a YouTube series? What, what was I going to do? I knew I could do something as a creative. Um, and I thought the best way is just to tell my career story uh, in, 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 in a way that wasn't like, look how cool I am, but let me explain the career field as best I can so that we could at least answer that question for all the people who don't understand immigration. Let me, let me answer this small part of it, the border patrol career field. So now that shouldn't be in question ever again. Everything else is just a mess, but that right there, um, my goal was to explain what the career field of the border patrol was looking like. And I asked Jocko, is he interested in, he read five chapters and said, hell yes, you got a book, you got a publisher now. Well, hey, you, you, and also in the book, in Borderline, you do a great job of defining terms because, again, even for someone like me that's, you know, well-read and I'm really up on a lot of topics, there was stuff in here. I was like, oh, my God, I'm so stupid. I never really thought that that was it. But also Jocko being based in San Diego when he was with the military and now, you know, where he lives, people don't think about that as a as a big you know, crossing, right? Like Eagle Pass or something like that. But as you talk about in the book, you have this crazy tunnel system there where people are coming across the border from Mexico into San Diego because of this tunnel system. And so you really dig into all that. Um, and we won't spend a lot of time here because we, we do want to cover a lot on the borderline stuff, but it's very, uh, it used to be very unique for guys that were from the spec ops community or from law enforcement to go into kind of Hollywood or go into entertainment. It's not as, uh, unique now because there's quite a few guys that are doing it but it's because of guys like you that are paving the way for other veterans to get in you know sometimes consulting but sometimes like you know actually doing the acting and then for you 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 know as i understand it you also write and you also produce and you're on the you were on the show mayans uh mc and you know that's kind of an offshoot of of um of uh oh my gosh SOA, uh, Sons of Anarchy, what the heck? Um, and so you have the offshoot of that. But talk to me a little bit about that transition because that's not exactly a straight line. At least it wasn't when you did it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not. It wasn't easy. Um, you know, I grew up in L.A. And so being around the acting community wasn't uncommon. Uh, I saw a lot of kids doing theater because their dads or their uncles or whoever was in the Hollywood scene already. And so it was always of interest to me, but baseball kind of took my priority. And so I stopped really paying attention to what I could do in the entertainment side because I didn't think it was possible. Mm. Later on, I started doing YouTube with some friends and the YouTube series really blew up to the point where we decided to produce a movie. And that was when like, okay, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Right. I've always wanted to be in a position to be a writer. I've just wanted to be a writer my whole life, but how can I write the stories that I feel deserve to be told? Mm. You know, and so as I was trying to figure out how to become a writer, being, being an actor was the first thing that came, kind of fell on my lap. 
uh, when, when we produced that movie, I enjoyed it, but then I started making more friends in the industry and I started producing some, um, it was like skit comedy stuff called Dads and Parks. You can see it on YouTube. It's pretty funny stuff, right? But being in LA, filming those Dads and Parks, I was in the right place at the right time because a buddy called me and goes, hey dude, Mayans is still auditioning for guys. And I was like, bro, I don't even know how to do that, but I'm in. Like, what yeah. do I need to do? So at the time, I already had a headshot. I already had my acting reel put together. So I had all the my ducks in a row, per se. I just didn't have a representation, like an agent. So I called my buddy. And he said, I know the casting director. Let me just ask if they're interested in seeing you. He sent my headshot, sent my reel. And they were just like so desperate to find somebody. They were like, he looks great. Bring him in. And so I went in the next day with my wife, and I did my audition. By chance, it's it's kind of like preparation meets opportunity. I showed up looking the way I do, you know, being able to act just enough to get onto the show. And in the five years, you know, I was able to go from just a, you know, a guest star to a season regular as well yeah. as a writer on the show. And so I was able to just kind of grow in the space in those years and using really just trying to be a good person and also good work ethic. And from there, it's just kind of continued to blow up. Well, half of it is just showing up. I was just talking to some parents the other day, and I'm like, look, if your kid shows up to the job with a smile on their face and bathed, they're so far ahead of their peers. But the same thing about what you did, it reminds me, I just heard recently about Terry Crews, who's now you know mega star, but he was just kind of hanging around, and someone invited him to the set of Training Day to watch uh, Denzel Washington. And he was like, he's my favorite. I'd love to just watch him do what he does. And there he is in a tank top and, you know, his traps are, you know, tickling his ears and he's so jacked. And uh, Antoine Fuqua, who was a director, and he came up to him and he was like, hey, do you want to be in this movie? And he's like, are you kidding me? And they put him in all kinds of different scenes just because of his look and all that. And that kind of launched his career. So it's interesting that you had that. But if we if we go all the way back uh, to, you know, when you started to make the decision that, hey, you wanted to go the military route. Again, in the book, you kind of do a lot of description of what kind of led up to that decision making. But specifically, I'm always uh, curious about guys that want to go the special operations route. So maybe they want to be a Green Beret or a Navy SEAL or, you know, an Army Ranger or something like that, recon Marine. But for you, what kind of helped you make that decision that like, okay, no, I'm going Army, but I'm not just going to you know, go the normal route. Like I want to be an army ranger and not just any army ranger. I want to be, you know, second battalion of the 75th uh, ranger regiment. Yeah. You know, um, I wasn't even sure if I wanted to join the military, but at the time, like my life was kind of going all over the place. I had a daughter that was born. I didn't have the money to, to, to buy her diapers or anything. Uh, I just lost a full ride baseball scholarship to a college that I was playing for. Uh, I was in this city of Owensboro, Kentucky, like didn't had friends, but it wasn't home, you know, and so it's kind yeah. of at a loss. And uh, I was in I was in good shape. I've always been kind of an athlete. And so I said, if I'm going to do this, I just finished watching like Black Hawk Down. And then the other day with the bands of Band of Brothers and, and like you watch those films and you're just like, one, do I have that in me? to just to take the fight to the enemy. Like I questioned it. I watched the war on TV for the past two years at that time and said, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I want to kind of do the best version of that. And I want to try and be special operations. Uh, and so I joined with a Ranger contract and Ranger infantry contract, knowing like, you know, it wasn't going to be long before if I made it through, I'd be going overseas. And yeah, once I got through the, all the training and passed the selection uh, within 45 days, I was in Afghanistan. And you did three tours. Is that correct? Yes, correct. Two to Afghanistan and one to Iraq. 
Okay, so just real quick, I, I want to divert off and then we'll get back uh, get back on the highway here. So I've talked to a lot of guys that have fought in Afghanistan. A lot of the guys were special operations. And I've gotten a lot of different viewpoints on the American pullout from Afghanistan. None of them are positive, right? They're, they're happy with what they did in country, with the, the people they were able to save, the people that they were able to protect, you know, uh, setting up this basically this environment where there could be human flourishing until Joe Biden decided, hey, we're just going to pull out. Yeah, we'll leave a bunch of stuff behind. And then obviously everybody could watch the news and see what happened uh, a couple of years ago when that all went down. But for somebody that actually was there, that had very important people to you that passed away, maybe not necessarily in Afghanistan, but in the global war on terror, like, yeah. how does that how does that make you feel when you're watching the news? And it's like, look, I was there and like we fought for that ground that is currently being ran over by Taliban. Yeah, it was tough. It was it was tough. It almost you, at first you just feel like it was all for nothing. You know, it was yep. all done in vain, and and that's not a good feeling. That's not a that doesn't. It's not a feeling that you can swallow that pill very easily. Um, it's still frustrating, right? I, I'm I'm never going to be happy about that whole situation, how it went down. You know, I was also I you know I spent some time learning the language of Pashto. You know, I did nine mm -hmm. months of training, and so I was able to use it in Afghanistan and and became. Uh, close with some of the interpreters and knowing that some of those interpreters were left behind as well uh, and, and left uh, to, you know, fend for themselves in an environment that was looking for them to kill them. And so uh, I was very proud of some of my brothers who went back and tried to rescue as many of our, of our you know, allies and supporters who are out there that supported America for the past 20 years and then got left behind. That was frustrating. Um, you know, I can only look back at my time and be be proud of the moments that I was a part of the the guys that fought to the left and right of me. And you know, in that moment, I'm sure you've heard before. It's like we don't think about the politics behind it. We think no. about each other, the love we have for each other, and and making sure that we do our job at our best, so then we could all go home together. And so, um, I can compartmentalize it. Watching everything that went down. Uh, it was hard to watch. It was hard to watch for the Afghani people as well, not just American soldiers, not just, you know what I mean? I mean, if you understand it at all, like, man, we had a lot of support over there that that believed in what we were giving them or were trying to do for them. And, you know, they got screwed over just as bad. Yeah. And I think it, it, it aligns very closely with what you talked about in borderline when you're talking about, okay, when you're doing certain kinetic things on the border, whether it was with Borstar or Bortac or whatever, like, you're not necessarily in that moment. You're not worried about immigration policy. You're not worried about what ICE is doing. You're not worried about any of these things. And we'll, we'll start defining terms here in a little bit. You're worried about making sure that everybody gets to go home. And unfortunately for some border patrol agents over the years, like that's not a reality for everybody. So I do want to talk a little bit about now, like, let's talk about that transition. So you're in special operations, you've been deployed. You decide at one point, I think it was, you know, that you weren't going to go past uh, your first four years. And then there's this transition period. And so some people think, oh, well, you just get out and you just apply for the border patrol. And a couple of weeks later, you're there. Not necessarily. So, so, so take us through that whole, you know, yeah. thought process of, okay, I'm going to get out of the military, but I'm going to go do something else. What is that something else? And then somehow you end up being a border patrol agent. Yeah. You know, we, we sat in a, uh, in a hooch and something that's very common for a lot of us in, in the military is we start thinking about what's next. Hmm. And, uh, my father was an LA city firefighter for 30 something years. So I obviously was going to try and be a firefighter like my dad. Uh, and so when I got out, I moved directly to Arizona. My goal was to get out of L.A. When I grew up, it was kind of a gang-infested area. 
and I didn't want to raise my kids in that environment. So we moved directly to Arizona. The first job I could find was a prison guard. And so as I was going through the prison guard and working there, I was going to school to be a firefighter. I was doing my fire one and two, my EMT, my wildland fire. I was going through all the certifications mm-hmm. and, um, the border patrol was in the back of my mind, but but uh, I wasn't sure if I really wanted to do that or not. The the following the the legacy of my father was kind of more important, and so um, I ended up get, getting onto a um, it was like a small reserve fire department, and I fought a fire. You know, I was a, I was lead on the hose, <clears throat> and as I was fighting the fire, I sat there realizing like, yeah, this isn't for me. I want to get back into mm-hmm. to running and gunning. I I miss that world. I did it for so long that it was kind of second nature to me. So my goal is to get back at it. And so I applied for the Border Patrol and it took about two years, a hiring process for me to finally get there. So at the, during that time I was at the Border Patrol, I mean, I was a prison guard and then I was going through some military training as well on the reserve side of things. But yeah, it took two years and I finally got into the Border Patrol in June, 2009. Okay, yeah, I remember writing and, and sorry to anybody watching this on YouTube, for whatever reason, my uh, camera has decided that it doesn't want to focus in on my face. I don't know if it's because I'm ugly or because I'm not wearing a, a Dodgers hat or what, but this is what I'll say. When I was reading through Borderline and you had that that section where you were talking about it took two years to get through the process, I wrote uh, in the margins, wow, like, I mean, how many uh, hiring processes take two years from soup to nuts? Like, that's that's kind of a crazy thing. But now let's, let's dig into Borderline here because there's a quote at the very beginning which kind of sets everything up, but it says, my primary goal in writing this book is to help you understand what the Border Patrol does to protect America today. But one of the first things that we need to do is we need to define our terms and we need to know exactly what in the world are we talking about, which you helped me do as I was you know, preparing through this. And it's what's the difference in terms of scope of operations for the Border Patrol and ICE or Immigration and Customs Enforcement. So let's start there and then we'll just kind of balloon out from there. Yeah. So Customs – all right. Customs itself are the ones at the port of entry. They wear the blue uniforms. And it's, it's often very confused because people will say, first of all, the term border control is not used in our world. Border control is a, is a term that sounds right. It sounds like you've put the two pieces together, but no one in our world uses border control as the name of any of us. It's Customs and Border Protection, Border Patrol, and ICE. And so those three are your big kind of agencies that you would probably immediately uh, understand when going to the border. The blue uniforms are the ones who protect the port of entries. That's the areas where people can enter and exit America um, by showing documents or whatnot. The green uniforms, us as border agents, we protect everything in between those port of entries all across the border from northern border and south. And our job is essentially to apprehend anyone crossing the border illegally and to process them. Uh, Our job is not to make a determination of their case. Our job is to only um, process the paperwork and what they say their case is. And then once we've had them processed, we hand off to ICE, who then determines how they're gonna be housed and as well as if they're gonna be deported or not. Uh, In most cases that we're seeing today, as in the asylum cases, are being given notice to appears so they can see an immigration judge at a later date and that immigration judge will make a determination on their case based on the evidence that's presented as well as uh, when they go see them directly in front of them at the courthouse. Hey guys, real quick. 
I know that a lot of you in my audience lead very disciplined lives. You crush your workouts, you're getting after it on the mats, you're standing out at work, your family actually likes you, (laughs) you seem to have everything under control. But I've been a part of enough discussions with men over the years to know without a doubt that many of you are dealing with unwanted compulsive behaviors or addictions, whether it's pornography, drinking, smoking, using illegal substances, gambling, lying, whatever. Many of you have allowed yourselves to be mastered by something that is stronger than your willpower. If you don't get that in check, guys, it can have astonishingly negative consequences for your marriage, your relationship with your children, your business, your job, your church, on and on and on. I think you get the point. That's why I want to introduce you to my friends at Relay. Relay is a recovery app that matches you with accountability partners that will help you get a handle on your unwanted compulsive behaviors. Relay provides easy-to-use tools that can be tailored to your specific needs and preferences, which will enable you to reach a stage of recovery that you never thought possible. Don't go it alone Don't keep trying the same failed tactics that you've tried in the past. Don't let another day go by without getting your compulsive behavior under control. Let my friends at Relay help. Go to the link in the show notes to try Relay today. That takes you to joinrelay.app backslash undaunted. It's time to start taking this seriously. Again, go to the link in the show notes. Click that link in the show notes to get started. Okay, so th- so that's really helpful to kind of understand, okay, who does what? And again, all this is in the book, guys. You got to check out Borderline because you get into all that detail. But specifically, you know, most people think like, I guess they don't understand anyone else's job other than theirs. You know what I mean? And so they don't understand how backed up these judges are that are determining these these immigration uh, statuses yeah. and different things. Like everybody's super, super backed up. But what I want to know is I want to know what a normal, boring like super nothing going on day is for a border patrol agent. And then also I want an idea of like, okay, when you look back on your time in the border patrol and it was like, that was a really kinetic day. That was a crazy day. Take us what it is like a day in the life of a border patrol agent, super boring to super kinetic. Yeah. I mean the most average days during my time, it was very slow traffic. And so it wasn't what you have today. And we also had an operation streamline and that was kind of a, um, a case by case in different s- sectors of Texas. And if they entered illegal, illegally, they were put into uh, holding for a certain amount of time. So that changed the traffic. And I, I talk about that in my book as well. But a boring day, a normal day is you'll show up to work and you'll, you'll go to muster. And from muster, they're going to determine where you're working that day. Any part of the sector, they're going to say, hey, today you're going to be either local downs or Kimalo, different areas in the city. Uh, and once you get that notification of where you're going to work, then you kind of know what you need to bring with you, whether, hey, that's an area that we're probably going to just do high vis, right? We're going to park on a high point and just turn the lights on or, or just be there, be a, be a presence. Uh, or you're going to be, hey, I'm going to lay up and try and catch some dope because this is a good dope area. And so you make that determination. Either way, in all locations, you're going to cut the drag. And so along the border fence across, across America, there's some kind of dirt path that is used to identify foot traffic. And so as soon as you get on, you call in and say, hey, I'm going to be cutting the drag from this point to this point, and you cut it. And when you say cut it, you're going to be driving really slow, and you're dragging something behind. So you're actually almost like in baseball where they drag something across the field. Yeah. We're cleaning up the dirt so there has nothing – there's no um, – imprints on the dirt and as you cut the dirt you're looking and seeing if there's anything in front of you that you might have to address 
what we're looking for is foot traffic, potential foot signs on the ground. That'll determine that when I was in muster and while the other agent was gone, they jumped the fence or they went through the fence or they swam through the river and they started running across. They obviously know our times of transition. They know when we change shifts. They, they know the whole deal, right? And so as that process happens, we're trying to identify that. As we drive in and, and identify nothing, well, then every couple hours, you cut the drag again, and then you just respond to any camera action, any kind of sensor activities. And that's what you do throughout the day. You'll find some spots that put your vehicle high, and you'll eat your lunch. You'll talk to your partner if you have a partner that day. And so you can do that for eight to 10 hours of just kind of, roaming the area looking for something in a busy day would be something like you start to cut the drag and then you see sign of potential 10 to 20 mm. then it's on then you go hey i got positive sign right here um it looks like 20 here's the footprints and so you identify which prints you see it could be something like a nike shock very familiar soul everyone knows what that looks like mm. it could be the bottom of an adidas looks like a running w so they call it a running w and so you call those out say hey, i got three running W's, I got a, I got a shock, I got um, a flat sole, a working boot, whatever it is you want to call out. And that'll help the other agents say, okay, cool, what's the line of travel? You send them your GPS coordinates, boom, they jump ahead and they're looking for that same prints, identifiers, up ahead a couple miles. And when they find it, boom, now you're going to be kind of hopping over each other to continue to cut off the group to try and get to them as fast as possible. Every area of operations has these identifying markers, whether it be a water tower, whether it be a light uh, that these groups tend to travel towards. They're kind of their indicators of like, hey, this is northbound. And so we kind of know those lines of travel because they're very common for just being experienced out there. And boom, we all jump out and track them. And there's days where you can track for 20 miles. And eventually you grab the group and it's a, it's a very fulfilling day that you, you were, you were working and cutting sign and, and, and tracking them for 20 miles to apprehend a group of potentially 15. Um, that's a good day's work for a border agent. Okay. And I think one thing that there, there's so many myths that you dispel in this book, which I'm appreciative for that. But I guess another myth is, Okay, either Border Patrol is super not dangerous at all because y'all are super far away from the problem, or you guys are getting in kinetic gunfights literally every single day with cartel guys, and you're, you're shooting it out with El Chapo's dudes, and it's like, okay, like, no, neither one of these things are going to be accurate, but you do have a quote in the book is, if you ask me today to describe the toughest part of being a Border Patrol agent, this was it, knowing that you may not see your kids again. Now, yeah. whenever I come up to my studio and put a microphone in front of my face, I'm not thinking to myself, man, that may have been the last time I kissed my boys, right? Because it's just not one of those things. But if you're a firefighter or if you're a, a police officer or if you're a military member, like obviously that's part of it, but it's the same for border patrol. So talk to me a little bit about the, the actual dangers you guys face again, not, not the Hollywood version, but like the real stuff that actually goes on on the ground. Yeah. We have a lot of agents who are killed by car accidents. We have a lot of agents who, you know, there's there's agents who have been killed by by um, illegal immigrants who came across with ill intent. You know, we have agents that are that are dying in the fields from drownings, right? And so there's these incidents. I mean, we had we had several National Guard soldiers who are working on the border drown recently, mm. and so. You're in an environment that's so dynamic that changes from the flow of the water to the heat of the desert, you know what I mean, to driving your vehicles all over the place trying to apprehend individuals, and then also not knowing if these individuals are going to put up a fight. 
at all at any point in this career field, you can find yourself in the worst case scenario. Now, truth be told, that worst case scenario is few and few few of those happen. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention it's a possibility of what we do daily. Hmm. Now, the 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 intention of the border patrol is not an aggressive posture by means. It is genuinely a humanitarian mission at first. As you're coming across and you've entered illegally, I'm going to say stop. You're obviously here illegally. We're going to bring you in for processing. Most of the time, they're just going to sit down and be like, oh, thank God, because I'm tired of walking seven days. Hmm. The other side of it is, there's the, the small percentages, they put up a fight. And then that's the concern, like, what is he fighting for? Well, most of the time, the fights are from the coyotes, the people who are smuggling them, right? The bad guys carrying something illegally, or they have a criminal record, so obviously they don't want to get caught. And so there's these moments that you might not expect it to be tension, and then it does. And so it's almost like living in an environment of like, if you get too complacent, you know, some danger is going to rear its ugly head. And so day in and day out, we're not pulling out our pistol very often. We're not engaging with cartel like people think sometimes. I had a guy message and said, why are the border patrols so quite quick to shoot Mexicans? I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. For law enforcement per capita, we have the least amount of use of force scenarios. We actually get assaulted way more than any other law enforcement out there. The, the statistics are in the book in the back. And so it's this really interesting career field. Like we get rocks thrown at us. What's the chance of a rock knocking you out cold and then what? Right? We get attacked from, from the coyotes. We, the, it, the list goes on and on of how many assaults happen for our agents. You know, and, and in the book, I talk about how many shootings you think happen per year. I mean, it's, people would imagine thousands, and it's so low. It actually proves how well-trained our Border Patrol is in understanding the environments of what we're, what we're dealing with. Well, I think uh, in the book it was 50 to 1, like you're 50 times more likely to be assaulted by someone that you're dealing with than for you to be assaulting someone else or, or to be killing someone else there on the border. So, yeah, obviously the idea that you're just sitting down there, you know, welcoming everybody like, hey, come on in versus hey, you're sniping people that are sitting there like in the desert. Like, again, it doesn't yeah. really uh, make a lot of sense if people actually dig into the real data. Now, another thing I think people don't really understand is that there is a, I guess, special oper special operations element to the Border Patrol. So in the book, you spend a lot of time talking about this. So we'll let, you know, some of the stuff talk, uh, you know, in the book for itself. But Bortac, Borstar, and then if I remember correctly, I think both of those are combined now and it's called SOG, Special Operations Group or, or something like that. And so I guess just take us through like modern day, you know, 2023 you know, what is the special element of the Border Patrol? And I guess, what exactly are they doing? What are their areas of operation? What what type of training? Like, what, what do they actually do operations-wise? Yeah, so you have the, the two we'll talk about is BORTAC and BORSTAR. And BORTAC and BORSTAR are, are separate entities, but they also work together really well. And so BORTAC is our Border Patrol tactical team, essentially the Border Patrol SWAT team. And what they do is... Uh, anything you can think of on the border that it deems it necessary for that kind of kinetic job, the Border Patrol can, is capable of. Things like um, assisting on warrants for, for other agencies. Things like um, search for you know escaped convicts. We, we're very known for that in the BORTAC industry, the BORTAC world. Um, they, are, they can do anything you think of, but what I was a, t attached to them, we did things like we gather intel on you know, cartel and, and cartel individuals that are associated with cartel, and we did our best to disrupt uh, their system, whether it be apprehending, breaking down, the, you know, having, having any kind of intel that you can do to gather to, 
to find the patterns and disrupt them. And so we mm. did that, things like that, and it's attached, I was the medic attached. Now, me being a medic attached to them is because my specialty was tactical medicine. But I was a Borstar agent uh, first, and Borstar, um, we are the pararescue jumpers of the border. Essentially, we are search, trauma, and rescue medics who carry a rifle and are proficient with all of it. And so I've done things from swift water rescues to longline rescues to search and rescues for miles and miles of looking for someone who's lost in the middle of nowhere. And then as well as I've been attached to Bortac as their primary medic, as the, the tactical medicine expert, uh, and I go along with them on their missions. And so uh, what every, they're in every sector, they have an SOD team, Special Operations Detachment, everywhere. They have one. And then SOG would be kind of like the national team that can get response to, responded anywhere in the world if need be. And so SOG is kind of the tier one element of the Border Patrol Special Operations Units. Okay, and you, you talked about in the book, you actually, I think, started by teasing it up, which made me super annoyed because I was like, he's not going to get to this until later in the book. What a jerk. But you teased up how there there was two escaped convicts and how the Border Patrol was like in New York, like upstate New York or somewhere, like trying to track these dudes down. And people are like, what, what in the world is Border uh, Patrol doing out there? They Shouldn't they be on the border? So you do get into a lot of that. But, but now I really want to spend the, the rest of our time digging into a bunch of random questions that all have to do with uh, the border in some uh, way, shape, or form. But these are all questions that just came to mind for me uh, as yep. I was reading through the book. And so I would just write them in the margin and be like, okay, I'll just ask you about it. And they're going to bounce all over the place. So there, there's no rhyme or reason. There's no order to these. And so unlike you, I'm not going to like tease something at the beginning and then, you know, screw everybody up. Guys, just to let you know what he does at the very beginning, spoiler alert, he kind of teases you like, oh my gosh, there's these two convicts and they're murderers and they're just hanging out with the populace and they're trying to track the guys down. Oh, and by the way, I grew up in Los Angeles. It's like, ah, come on. I know you're going to tell me the rest of it at the end. It's good storytelling. It's good writing, but it just makes me, it's just annoying. Okay. But let's go ahead and get in. The very first thing I want to read this quote here and then get into this question. Homeland border security is the same as personal home security. If you cannot control who and what enters your personal home, you have no security. If we cannot control who and what enters our homeland, we have no security and ultimately no nation. So according to these statements, Vincent, uh, is it fair to say that the United States doesn't have any security or ultimately has no nation? Because... When you think about how porous the southern border is, and just this morning I heard about, you know, uh, apprehensions at the northern border are up almost 400% this calendar year. Again, ad the administration in office has something to do with that in the things that they uh, allow for or the things that they uh, basically, yeah, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn here, but it, it does seem to me it's where it's like, yeah, if you don't have borders, you don't have a nation. If you don't have walls, you don't have a house. So is it fair to say that? Uh, I don't know if it's fair to say that. I would say like the, the point of saying that in the book is trying to establish for people to understand because I know who's going to read this book. You got your left, right, everybody. Right. But the side of it that talks about like just open borders, let them in. It's like, well, what's, you have a door in your house for a reason, don't you? And and same reason why we, right. Same reason why we have our border patrol there. We're trying to do a job. Now, currently what we're dealing with now and, and I talk about in the book is the dial. So if you if you want to understand our system is we have two systems going on at once. We have our immigration policy and then we have our homeland security. Hmm. Both of those are very important. One, if we don't have immigration, we're not America, right? We have a dignity as a country and we welcome immigration. 
but legal immigration. Now, on the other side of it, we have Homeland Security, and that's protecting us, right? That's from 9-11 after 9-11 that was introduced. And so when you have both of those, they both have to be met with whatever, whatever's happening at the border. And currently, we're doing, more, we are, we're doing more for immigration than we are for security. And that becomes a concern for all of us. And so, yeah, I think right now the dial has turned to the side. We're too far one way, and now we have an immigration coming in influxing because we've incentivized illegal immigration. We can't incentivize illegal immigration because then what's the point of using legal immigration? What's the point right. of using the proper channels? Mm-hmm. And so now we have this issue here where the, the communication on the south of the border from either cartel or, or, or human trafficking companies, organizations, or just people individually, they know like, hey, it's a lot easier just to cross right now because they're just letting us in. And so that's why we're going to continue to have this massive influx of illegal immigration because uh, they're incentivizing it. And that's unfortunate because it's causing a lot of chaos. And I think the repercussions of this will be, will be dealt with in the near future. And when you incentivize particular behaviors and then people uh, are killed because of those behaviors, whether they're in the back of a, of a, you know, truck and they die because they're left there and they basically get cooked to death. Or if, you know, they're taken advantage of by coyotes or they're a young gal that has basically raped her entire way from Central America up to the Southern border of the United States. And then, you know, maybe she's sent off into sex trafficking. Like when you incentivize these, these certain behaviors, like it's, it's as if I were to sleep with all my doors and windows open. It's like that doesn't guarantee that something bad is going to happen to me and my family, but it's guaranteed a stupid idea. And it certainly is going to make it much easier for a wolf to get in if they wanted to do something to me and my family. Um, It's it's more more like someone forcing you to keep your door open at your own house. Right. And not even giving you the option of shutting it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Okay. Next question here. So it seems as if there are not enough border patrol agents to do what they're doing. So even in the book, you talked about it for, I forget the exact numbers, but there were like 20 of y'all that were covering like 140 or 150 miles worth of border. So why are there seemingly so few border patrol agents for such a large border? Uh, well, it's two parts right now. It's hard to keep border patrol agents in, in the agency. You had guys who were retiring at their 20 year mark just to retire, to get out of the career field because of all the scrutiny and, and politi- politicizing of the career field. The morale of the career field currently is the lowest it's ever been. They have the highest suicide rate per capita of law enforcement officers, right? And so why is that? Well, because the world is telling them they're the worst thing of our country, and it's completely false. They are the best thing we have that defends against the defense against terrorism at our border. They do it for us at the foot of the border. And so that is a big part. Right now, they have the lowest recruiting numbers because no one wants to come to a career field that is scrutinized the way it is. And yep. so my, another part of my job uh, is trying to be a voice for the Border Patrol agents. They, they can't say this. They can't publicly say this or they'll lose their job from the lowest all the way up to the highest. I know the facts. Um, and so writing this book was my goal is to be a voice for them to explain their career field as well as to hopefully help with recruiting. Some of us have to stand up against whatever's happening and say, no, I'll still defend this country. I'll still defend this nation. And we're hoping that this book creates a massive influx of future border traders who are willing to do the job that is thankless, that is selfless, that is just the most unappreciated career field in our nation. When I've had conversations with uh, law enforcement officers uh, just in, you know, normal uh, everyday communities here in the U.S. and people that are going through academy and their biggest worry is not the written test or the physical test or any of those things. It's like, 
what if I get into a traffic stop with someone that's a person of color and I'm a white guy and something goes sideways and I end up shooting that person, my life's over. Like my family's life is over. And so people are like, F it, I'll go drive a UPS truck. Like I'll go, I'll go do anything else. And these are people that otherwise would be answering the call to protect their local communities or to protect the border. So I think it's a, it's a valuable goal that you have here. Now, Trump people are going to love this next question because it's basically why not just build the wall? Because here's the thing we talked about it. Walls, walls to a degree, they do work. I remember a a CNN anchor was like standing at a border fence, like uh, one of the metal border fences and saying, you see, there's nobody over here on the other side congregating, trying to get over And their point was opposite of the point they actually made because it's like, because the wall works, you jerk. Like no one's trying to get over that wall because they know they can't. So I guess for me, I know there's a lot of money and there's a lot of stuff in it and Trump has built his brand on build that wall and then he was in office for four years and didn't do it. Why not just build a wall? You know, I think, um, you know, there's a misconception of the wall. There's people that don't realize there's always been a wall. You know what I mean? And the wall argument has just kind of been pulled in different directions for arguments of like political stuff. But the truth is the wall's always been there. They've been adding to it. There's areas of the border that need it that would actually help support the Border Patrol career field, right? Because what it acts as is a deterrence, but as well as it helps funnel traffic to areas where are more manageable for agents to work, yeah. right? And so there's definitely areas deep in, in our borders that, can, that could use a border wall that would help us funnel our traffic and be more mindful about who comes in and out. A wall won't stop everyone. There's people sure. that'll go over it, through it, and under it, yes, but it will slow down the traffic. For some reason, there's people like on social media like, bro, I've lived here forever. There's already a wall. It's like, well, yeah, we're not talking about that one, dude. Right. We're talking about <laughs> other areas that need the wall, right? And, and right. it's just this very confusing thing that society wants to argue on all these things. But the truth is, I think Trump made people just say no because it was Trump, right? Because people want to just like jump all over any kind of Trump idea. But the truth is the wall was a, is a good idea in a lot of places that and more technology. We need more technology to do our job better. Yeah. As long as you understand what the wall is not, because some people think you build the wall and then we're done talking about this. We can move on to like fixing roads and bridges. It's like, no, like that, that's one thing. It provides a deterrent and then it, you know, pushes people towards ports of entry or more manageable places. Like you said, the terrain is, you know, easier to build a wall as opposed to putting people on terrain, you know, all that kind of stuff. All right. Next question in terms of that, which kind of works into it is why not just shut down the border completely except for ports of entry. And so you you talk about this a little bit uh, later in the book and you you kind of describe this dissonance between wanting to have it completely wide open so that we can be seen as loving and and supportive and empathetic and then having it completely shut down and being seen as militaristic and, you know, all these other different things. But all I know is I don't want a single American to die or to be hurt at the hands of an illegal immigrant that shouldn't have been here to begin with, you know, why not close the border and force many of those? Here's the other part of it. Maybe this is too big of a question, but I think you can handle it. But a lot of these people coming over the border are military aged males. Why not say, Hey, the United States is closed for business. Go back to your country and fix it. Okay. I'm sorry you weren't born here. I'm sorry you were born in, you know, El Salvador or Ecuador or Venezuela or somewhere else. But go back and fix it. If you don't like the way things are going on there, if you're looking around for someone to fix it, you're the guy. You like hold up a mirror and be like, you're the guy to go back and fix it. Why not just shut down the border entirely? So when when you say shut down the border, what does that look like to you? 
I, yeah, I guess I would say to extrapolate that out to where it's like people can literally only get in like, you know, assuming you build the wall, they go to the normal port of entry. So that's where they can go to apply right. for asylum. But if they're just coming because they want to work or they're just coming because they heard America was awesome, it's like, nope. The, you're out. Yeah. We'll, we'll process your asylum, but you have to stay in particular areas. You're not just going to gallivant or across the country while we figure it out. Well, I, th I think I do talk about this in the book about we have to determine how we want that dial. Do we want to be North right. Korea or do we want to be a country with no borders, meaning no country at all? Right? right. And it's like we don't want either of those. We want something more in the middle. And both of those, like I said, uh, Homeland Security and, and immigration policy both have to be met. Right. Because this is who we are as Americans. And, and, I, and I would almost argue that we do have a closed border. They're not supposed to come illegally. We have rules. They just do. And so yeah. if we lined up border changes across the border outside of the port, port of entry, if we bring National Guard and if we bring there still will be tunnels. There still will be ways up, over, around, under. It doesn't matter. People will still try and enter illegally. Um, I think it's a, it's a, I say there's not a one plus one equals two answer for this. This is a multi-layered echelon approach. This is uh, having a diplomatic approach to the southern countries below us that people are escaping from and seeing why. How can we as Americans maybe step in and help them? Do we bring, um, you know, manufacturing there? I don't know, but is there something we can do to help keep that country in, in, in its safe where they don't want to come to America, that they can thrive in their own country? Also, is there a way that we can, you know, counter the, the intelligence that the cartel uses or human trafficking companies, organizations use to educate people? We don't have them educated enough to say, hey, this is dangerous. Half of you are going to be, you know, thrown to the wayside. Some of you are going to be raped. So there's a lot of levels we can approach to try and mitigate this more. Yes, we should. We, we absolutely can't take on as many as we've taken on already. Our resources are depleted. Uh, we're spending money in other ways. We didn't spend it on the wall. Well, now we're spending it in processing centers, right? And so this issue is, is continuing to, to create more issues. And so we have to take our, our immigration policies more serious. We have to revamp a lot of what we have. And we have to start making making decisions soon. Um, it's really strange right now that we haven't had anyone really focus on how to fix this in a grand scale. I'm talking yeah. from South America all the way into America, people that are here currently, people that the DACA, right? All these different levels that need to be addressed when you say immigration, that's just the umbrella of massive amounts of other issues we have underneath that. And so- right. Yeah, I would. I, why don't we shut the border? I think we kind of have a closed border, but there no no one's listening because we didn't incentivize coming over illegally. And so, all those things is we had to like you and I would agree we need to secure our borders. But sure. your definition of securing that border, my definition might be starkly different, and that's the same as everyone. So I think we have to first start with the foundation of understanding what the border looks like now. What is the policies we currently have in place? And what are the jobs that are implemented currently right now from Customs, Border Patrol, and ICE? And what are their jobs? What, are, what do they do daily? So once we understand that foundation, we can now start trying to make an educated decision on, okay, well, what's next? Because right now, the, the one thing is we've just incentivized illegal immigration. That's the biggest issue right now. And everyone's seeking asylum. Well, mm. my job is not to determine that as a Border Patrol agent, so I don't fucking know. You know what I mean? I need to hand it to the next guy. And then ICE goes, well, I don't know either. I'm going to hand it over to the immigration judge. Well, immigration judge, I think we only have like 400 or 600 immigration judges. So they're backed up for years. So maybe we start with getting more immigration judges. How do we do that? Right? How do we, how do we streamline that process to identify who is here seeking asylum and who isn't? Who do we deport back? And so there's a lot of things that we need to kind of address and answer that question. But you and I, and I think everyone who listens to this podcast, we agree, we need to secure this border. And what we have currently right now is not working. 
Well, and, and to, to a point you made there at the beginning, you used the perfect word. It's a dial. And how far it's not it's not an on off switch. It's a dial, right. right? It's a dimmer, right? Like how dark do we want this room to be? How light do we want this room to be? And the reality of it is, and I, someone made this point here recently, but it's like, okay, it's easy to be a political commentator. It's much more difficult to be somebody that is a, a, a lawmaker, right? In Congress, because it's like, yes, you can scream and be a, a zealot for your side. But at the end of the day, there has to be some sort of policy that's put in place. The same is true for immigration. Now, th yeah. this may seem uh, similar to the last question, but it's really not. I've heard some talk. It's, it's not a normal talking point about people saying we should militarize the southern border. So what they mean is, yeah, sure, have the Border Patrol, ha have the the spec, the special operations point or uh, you know groups within that. But we need Air Force, Army, <laughs> Marines, na Navy somehow. Like we need everybody at the southern border and – Across the entire border, we're going to build uh, build outposts, and basically, if you if you're coming to the border, you're immediately pushed back, not shot, and we're not shooting you know tank missiles at people or something like that. But what is your thoughts overall about militarizing the border? Because when you talk about certain countries like North yeah. Korea, but then even on the other side, like in Israel or different places like that, yeah. it's like not play you're not getting in and if you try to someone in fatigues is going to push you back so so yeah. why not just militarize the border well the one thing you said in there that i think was 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 good was right that most people don't is you know they have to know if we did that i i don't see the problem in that besides the fact of there is two different um uh, postures that that you're seeing here. The Border Patrol doesn't take an aggressive posture. That's not our job. Our job is humanitarian. Our job is also we, we, we rescue, we save, then we apprehend, then we, right? And so our job is a very, very different headspace of how you engage with individuals. If you bring the military, my biggest fear is that they will engage with the intent of the aggression side of things first. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a problem with lining more people up and trying to stop the traffic. I would be, I would say we would have to, integrate their thought process into how the posturing should be on the border and it would change their ROV or, or, or uh, use of force, how that would be done. Because too many people show up and thinking, why don't we just stick our guns out and tell them no? I was like, well, then we kind of lose the dignity of who we are as a country when we start just doing that. And so this is a very tough opinions kind of conversation here, discussion, because a lot of Americans are like, why don't we just put guns and just shoot? Like, Man, that's really hard to say for someone who genuinely is a mother carrying her two kids and trying to get away from oppression, right? Like, that's hard for me as a person who has empathy, right? Who is also Hispanic, right? My grandmother came here illegally, and I did the most I could with her ideologies of being an American. And so that's where the dial has to be, and we have to choose. The light reference is great. How dark do we want to get? And I would hope that we keep the light on for our country and our ideologies and, our, and what, what our founding fathers believed in. This is a place of opportunity. This is a place, a land of freedom. And we just want people to respect that and continue that. My biggest issue is people coming here to America and not wanting to continue to thrive, but as well as invest in America's ideologies. This is well, a land of freedom. This is a land of opportunity. And we should continue that. Well, absolutely. And Again, when people make these declarations, you have to take what you're saying to its logical conclusion. And so what I would ask that person, so if someone were to say, we need to militarize the border, shoot everyone that tries to come across, I say, okay, so you have a mother holding her two kids. Uh, they're all uh, you know, near death uh, because of starvation and uh, you know, thirst, 
Um, and you have an 18 year old Marine with his M4 and you're telling him, shoot them, shoot all three of them. Is that it? Like this isn't, uh, you know, uh, a crazed fundamentalist Islamist that is wearing an, uh, an S vest or something like that, like right. running at you. And if you, if you don't shoot her as the 18 year old Marine, your entire you know group is going to die. That's not what this is. And so it's right. like, again, where is the dial? Because I can tell you, if somebody's walking up to my front door and they look like they need help, I'm not going to shoot them. But if somebody's yeah. walking up to my front door and they got that look in their eye or any of those types of things and they get in my bubble, like I'm at least going to think about it. I'm at least going to be prepared to do that if things were to go sideways. But you mentioned something there that you do talk about in the book, but it's um, everyone loves to bring race into everything because it's 2023. So why not just call everything racist? Math is racist. Snickers bars are racist somehow. Like everything's racist. But some people would say the ultimate goal of border patrol, that the goal is racist and xenophobic and anti-immigrant. And then for you, you have that extra thing of as a Hispanic man, like you have all these people asking you, hey, bro, why are you trying to be a border patrol agent? Like, why are you pulling up the ladder and, you know, letting everyone else drown? And that's the ladder that you just used to climb up. So talk about the racial elements, because if we haven't gotten in trouble at this point of the conversation, we might as well dive in with, you know, head first. Let's go. No, I mean, you know, what most don't understand is 60, 70 percent of the Border Patrol themselves are Hispanic, yeah. right? It is a Hispanic heavy career field. And I asked the question to some of my friends who are first generation and they said, it's like, bro, we love this country. When the country has given us the opportunity, why wouldn't we not continue to defend that? And for my own personal belief system is my grandmother came here for a reason, and she raised her kids here in America for them to continue to thrive in America. My uncle served our country. My grandfather served this country. My father served this country. Who am I to turn my back on the beliefs of my family who gave everything from their backs to? My mother used to pick cotton. That's how far removed I am from immigration, from my mother's family being of immigrants and making the best of they, they could in America. You know, it is only right for me to invest into this country that my family believes so wholeheartedly into and to raise my kids to believe in this country in that same light. And that's what a lot of us believe in. I believe the Border Patrol is the most patriotic law enforcement agency in the nation because day in and day out, they see what they're doing to protect this nation from the possibilities of terrorist actions and as well as from anyone who's here to try and but just take from this country and go back to their country. If you're not here to invest in this and to continue to uphold these ideologies, well, then all you are is, is trying to, to suck, suck from the resources and leave. And I don't want that. Well, it's a brain dead argument. And, you know, most arguments that come from people that would make those arguments are going to be brain dead arguments. But they're just like they love univariate analysis. It's like, well, you're white and these people are brown and you don't want them here. So you're a racist. It's like, is that it? Or is it possible there are 17 other things that I'm worried about if we just open doors? Because I don't care what you look like. I do care if you assimilate. I do care if you assimilate to our way of life and our way of thinking. Because again, as my senator here in the, the state of Oklahoma, James Lankford, pointed out in an address to Congress uh, last year, um, in the last calendar year, I think it was the first calendar year of Joe Biden's presidency, they apprehended at the border at least one person from every single country in the world. That includes North Korea and China and Iran and Eritrea and Sudan and uh, Mali, everybody. Like 
every single country had somebody represented there. And to say that all of those countries believe the same things that Americans do about human flourishing and about rights and justice and freedom would be foolish and absolutely antithetical to any understanding of history or anything else. Now, I don't think we really got as into as much trouble as I was hoping for because that was a very diplomatic answer. So screw you, Vincent. We're going to go into another a little bit farther. We're going to go a little bit farther here because you brought up DACA earlier. So that's the yep. Dreamers. I never remember uh, what that means, but it's the Dreamers. These are people, uh, you know, that were brought here typically as children. Uh, it was their parents or their grandparents that came here illegally, and now they're here. And so, I think I've heard a lot of arguments about, hey, we should work to deport every single person that is in the United States illegally, whether they've overstayed their visa or whether they came across the border, you know, whatever. Like, we need to work to get all those people out of the country. Now, specifically on DACA, here's my example. So let's say my dad, he was down on his luck and he decided that he wanted to go rob a bank. So he's successful. He gets the bank manager in there. You know, he gets, you know, $150,000 from the vault and he escapes. And then he says, hey, Kyle, I love you. You're my son. Uh, I want to make sure that you can provide for your family and all that. I have $150,000 I'd like to give you. And I have no idea where that money came from. And I'm like, dad, this is awesome. We're not going to tell the IRS. We're just going to put this in the bank or I'm just going to bury it in the backyard. This is great. Then my dad gets arrested. They found out that he robbed the bank. Do I get to keep that $150,000 because I didn't know where it came from or because, you know, oh, well, he had good yeah. intentions when he gave it to me. That's a, that's a small, somewhat silly example, but that's ultimately what we're talking about with dreamers because it's like, did they do anything wrong? No. Are they innocent of any and all crimes? Absolutely. But do they get the fruits, uh, you know, uh, of the poisonous tree as it were? Does that make sense? Right, right. Yeah, no, it, it does. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I am a Border Patrol career field uh, subject matter expert, not immigration, but, you know, I'm, I'm so involved in it. Right. Right. You know, I think Vivek in the in the last like political you know debate, he said something that I've never thought of. And I thought was very interesting about the DACA, about, you know, they, they should not be allowed to bring their child across, give birth. And then now they have, you know, soil of right to yep. be a citizen. I thought like, oh shit, I've never thought of that, but he's kind of right. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's, that's completely makes sense to me. Um, and I think, I think that started a deeper conversation that we're here now. It is hard for me to say, let's deport a kid who's been here for 18 years, had no idea he was an illegal immigrant. And then you send him to a country he doesn't even know either. It's hard. Yeah. How, it's the dial. How do you do that? Like, how do you do that in a way where you feel like that's a humanitarian decision? Um, you know, we, I think there's a time where we have to do some kind of pardoning of those individuals and it has to be a stop. All right. From this point forward, this doesn't, this doesn't fly anymore. Right. There has to be a, a change in this. At one point there has to be, sorry, this is the cutoff line for that. It doesn't happen anymore, but I've been there. I've been there where I've worked on a guy who, who came across illegally. We apprehend him. I'm rolling his fingerprints, and he starts speaking English. And I said, bro, he goes, dude, I found out I was here illegally. I didn't know if I should come back. I came across. I was like, I don't even know what to say now. now like, now you're screwed because you did it this way, and I caught, you know, I caught you. And I was so empathetic because the dude was, like, genuinely breaking down. I was like, 
man, it sucks. I have nothing to do anymore. I'm doing my job, right? My job is a board. I, I just process what I have in front of me. Hmm. And, and I just could imagine, like, I have no idea what's going to happen to that dude, but they might send him back. His, what happened is his mother brought him over here at a young age. Um, his mother got older, went back to Mexico, and she ended up passing away. He was in America his whole life, dude. Had no idea. Goes back to Mexico and, his, and realizes at that point that he's an illegal. He doesn't even have his papers to come back, so he had to cross illegally again to get back to work to and, and to his family. And he put himself in a hell of a fucking position. And... Yeah, man, I'm empathetic for it. I, f- I feel bad for the dude. And, you know, his, his every, every, I guess every situation is kind of a case-by-case story. And you'd have to almost take it as that and try and make a, a good decision on it. At some point, you send an adult over to, it doesn't matter, their country, and they don't know even the language. Man, how, we do, how, how can you call us America to do something like that? I feel bad. I would feel bad. I would be a little disappointed in ourselves at that point. Well, and it's everybody understands the case by case argument. The, the the problem obviously is if you do a case by case argument that you can't do a law, you know what I mean? And you know that, right. of course you know that like you can't do a law that says, all right, we're going to look at all these things on a case by case basis. Cause there has to be some sort of a standard. I remember a place I worked at a long time ago. There were a bunch of kids uh, from India. They came to the United States to study and they, they were computer scientists and they were great coders and great people. And they were going to be getting jobs, making really good money right out of school, building families, paying taxes, all those different things. But I think it's the H1V visa or whatever. It's a lottery system. And so here are all these people. They're not knuckleheads. They're not criminals. They're not going to raise knuckleheads or criminals. And they're having to cross their fingers and hope that they get selected in a lottery that would allow them to stay in this country lest they be sent back uh, to India or Pakistan or or wherever they were, were, were going or something like that. And it's just like, there's got to be a better way than this. It's like, I'm willing to trade 10 idiots that I know of that I grew up with for that one guy. Cause that guy's awesome. He believes in this country. He's not just going to sit on his laurels. He's going to help produce for us. And I don't care what color he is or what food he likes. See, I don't give a crap about any of that, but that's just something I I thought about. But again, that's not, that's not border protection, right? That is immigration policy and who the heck knows. Um, one thing I, I did want to ask about as well, because maybe you saw this, maybe you didn't. You didn't address it in the book, really. Um, but the corruption of particular Border Patrol agents. You did talk about in the book how in different border towns there would be just normal, regular old people that were all of a sudden drug mules. And they yeah. just were like, hey, you know, they needed some money to get by. You know, local law enforcement would be corrupt. Local politicians would be corrupt. They would help facilitate uh, drugs entering this country. And there's been a lot made about fentanyl and the deaths that have come from that. But the the product is coming from China. They're they're making it in Mexico and then they're muling it across the border. But there's got to be dirty agents, border patrol agents. So it's like, how do you identify that? What the heck do you even do? Like, because yeah. this isn't like a $20 handshake to, to get into a club. This is like you're helping mule stuff that's going to kill Americans while having the job that says border patrol across your vest, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, there's um, there's obviously, you know, there's I think there's a website that highlights every border patrol agent or customs agent who was caught doing doing the wrong thing. Um, and I think when you're dealing with drugs and the financial, I guess, uh, opportunities that some of these guys see and take is what's interesting to them. I guess they, they want to receive this extra money. And, and the border agents honestly get paid pretty well compared to the local pop, uh, you know, police department and other law enforcement agencies. 
But yeah, there's corruption in every law enforcement, including the Border Patrol. And, you know, I was working on the border with an individual and we we were actually workout partners. And again, I don't know the details of his case, but eventually he had to resign because it was under investigation. I don't hang out with a kid 24-7. I go do my job in the special operations. He goes, does his job. We go at night. We work out. We used to go to the bar together. You know, he started dating a certain individual that we knew had a connection to her past, which was a, you know, a guy she dated was a cartel member. And so you start to create distance. And so I had to create distance. I found a new workout partner and I was just, you know, guys were talking. They were saying, hey man, um, that might not be smart to hang out with him anymore. I was like, oh dude, that sucks because he seems like a really good dude. And it was shortly after he ended up getting released from the agency, which um, sometimes I believe they don't find the hard evidence they're looking for, but they're still able to to remove guys from the agency by having enough information. Uh, and I think um, I think someone someone obviously just told on him whatever it was. But I never saw anything. You know, I think I hung out with the dude a lot. I worked out with the guy, and never put two and two together because I was so involved in my world. So it's very easy to miss things like that. And I feel like I'm a very in tune individual. Um, and I, I imagine what would have happened. Probably she manipulated him to doing these things, and and I think it was a, it was the the conversation of transporting, um, you know, hard drugs, cocaine, and whatnot. And so, yeah, it's not it's not uncommon. Uh, as in, well, I would say it is uncommon, but it's not. You know, it happens, and that's just an unfortunate thing with dealing with drugs and the financial backing that drugs come. They come with well, drugs. And anywhere that you work, you're going to have people like that. Like, you know, there are people that are wearing the badge and they're going to help mule. And there's people at your office building that still pencils. And so it's like there, there's always somebody that is like doing something they shouldn't be doing because we're all fallen, sinful human beings. And, you know, uh, sometimes we make decisions in our best interest, which are not moral or righteous. Um, as we wind to a close here, um, this is something I just kind of stuck at the end of my notes because I was like, you know, if we had time to really get into it, may maybe it's a little bit uh, ridiculous to tack it on here at the end. But as I was reading through the book and I was kind of thinking about the narrative that you're, you're creating for us, and obviously, you know, we, we spent all this time talking about different Border Patrol type things. I saw a connection that you didn't explicitly make here in the book, but I wanted to ask you about it. So very early in the book, you have a quote about your father, and it's this. His work ethic and fierce love for his family intimidated me, but also inspired me. I had much to live up to, and failure was never an option. Now, Vincent, when you talk about your father in this book, Everything is very, very positive, but I was struck by the word intimidated. Um, and it reminded me of when you described Staff Sergeant Ricardo Barraza, because this is a guy, and again, you can read it in the book and you got YouTube videos out there, but uh, Ricardo Barraza was basically like the model ranger, right? Yeah. And this was a guy that you really looked up to and y'all competed for a while. And you, you know, you talked about the thing after that, like pickup football game and kind of what he said to you. And, and I'll leave that uh, for people that are going to pick up and read the book, but how that was like a turning point for you. And then no spoiler here, but uh, uh, Staff Sergeant Barraza passed away. He was killed while fighting the GWAT. I think it was in Iraq. And, you know, it was one of those moments for you where it's like, this is, this is the model ranger. He's the perfect ranger. How could he die? Like, a, yes, it's a dangerous job, but he, not, not for a guy like him. But I just saw a connection, at least for me, between your father, who was a man that you were deeply intimidated by, but you loved so deeply as well because he inspired you. And I feel like you have similar feelings towards Ricardo Barraza. So uh, I guess talk to me. Am I crazy or is there a connection for you there with those two guys? Yeah, no. Definitely. So my father was a former Marine and he, I don't think it ever, you know, 
it, it ever got and there's out of the technically system. there's technically never a former marine they will tell you That's that they're right. like no one's ever a right. former marine we're just retired he was a marine, he was a marine. and yeah. uh, or he is and uh you know he was a very very stern and and i would say just a he was strict, you know, and you woke up at seven o'clock, half the day is gone at 7 a.m. Half the day is gone. He's already done his walk. He's read his coffee, he's read his newspaper. You know what I mean? Like he's that kind of guy. So uh, there was times where like you try to find a way to get out of the house or else, you know, you know, the beast dad would become like, clean the room, blah, 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 blah. And so I, as much as a kid, I probably did not like that. As I got older, I realized how much I respected that and how much he's taught me to be a good man. And, I think Braza was the one who continued to teach me how to be a good man as a ranger, but not only as a ranger, as a, a thoughtful person, you know, we would do training and he'd say, is that what you want to, is that what you want to answer to when you get to the pearly gates? Like, how do you, you, how do you engage someone overseas? And then you have to, you're going to have to speak on that when you see God, right? And those things were just grounding for me um, that I continue to hold dear in my heart. And so yeah, Sean Braza, I look up to him like another father to me. And, and, and what I don't mention, I don't mention a lot. My focus was to give the Border Patrol all the, all the glory I could. Uh, but he was younger than me. And so to be a man who looked up to a man who was younger than him, uh, it was humbling for me. And uh, when I lost him, I was very fortunate to have my father with me at the time when we, we laid him to rest. And um, it brought me and my father even closer those are two important men in my life. And I was able to share one of the hardest days of my life with my father being there for me, supporting me. And so um, I love my father. He's been, he's, he was a hard, hard dude. He still is a hard dude. But um, when I get to see his heart, man, it's just been beautiful. When I think that that is a good message that I'm sure you would co-sign for the fathers out there that have sons that have maybe been influenced by our feminist culture, which says, hey, don't be too hard on the boys and, you know, don't don't try to make things more difficult on them. Don't try to instill discipline, like give them more space, give them more whatever. Men need struggle, right? Like this this idea that we're just going to retire and sit on the beach someday. Like, yeah, that's good. Like as Jordan Peterson's pointing out, yeah, that's good for like two weeks. And then what are you going to do? Are you just going to drink more pina coladas? We need struggle. We need difficult things that we do, whether that's jujitsu or hunting or working out or, you know, whatever thing that we're doing or writing a book or whatever that thing is that's going to tax us. It's the strong men in your life that are showing the other men, hey, there's a standard here and I'm the standard bearer and I'm going to show you and remind you of what it is that you have signed up to live up to as a member of this household or as a member of this unit or as a member of this whatever. That's a good thing for all of us to do. So that's just a good reminder for everybody. So I guess last question of the day that I got for you, Vincent, is do I know you well enough now to not call you Vincent anymore? Can I just call you Rocco from here on out? Is that Can we yeah, do that? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, that's it. Thank you so much for uh, the interview. I really appreciate it. All right, Rocco Vargas, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Yeah, thank you. There you go, guys. Hope you enjoyed my time with Rocco Vargas. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. Our mission at Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the link I've got for you today is I have a link to the book, Borderline, Defending the Homefront. Guys, go and pick it up and check it out. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song, 
Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs> <laughs>